0: This is the word of the Lord from Deuteronomy 5, God's people Spain. For who out of all mankind has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the fire as we have and lived? Go near and listen to everything the Lord our God says. Then you can tell us everything the Lord our God tells you. We will listen and obey. The Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. He said to me, I have heard the words that these people have spoken to you. Everything they have said is right. If only they had such a heart to fear me and keep my commandments always, so that they and their children would prosper forever. Go and tell them, Return to your tents, but you stand here with me, and I will tell you every command the statutes and ordinances you are to teach them so that they may follow them in the land I'm giving them to possess.
1: Thank you. Well, it's good to be with you again. Uh, If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Tim, and uh, as of this week, uh, I have been coming up now to help in one way or another with Sound City for almost exactly two years. Uh, Started off helping out with uh, the music ministry of the church. And then in the last six or seven months, I've been helping out with, with preaching. And it's just great to, uh, to be here again with you. Uh, today uh, we're finishing up this, this brief series, the, the plains of Moab, remembering God's saving work. And, and we're looking at, at specific, uh, a couple of specific passages in Deuteronomy. And here's the idea is that, is that uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, God's people, God's Old Testament people, the, the nation of Israel is, is that a key turning point in their life. Uh, after wandering, run, wandering around for, for decades in the, the wilderness, uh, living this kind of nomadic life, God has brought them to this, this area that he has promised them, a, a, a promised land of sorts. And, and they're on the edge; they're about to enter that land. There's going to be a, a leadership transition, and then a whole new life as they enter this land and and eventually settle down. It's a new chapter for God's people, and and Sound City is in kind of a, a similar place in some ways. Uh, it's on the verge of of significant change, a leadership transition, a, a, a new year, and a new chapter, kind of in the life of the church. And so, this series is a is a simple way to. Look back on God's faithfulness as well as, as look forward in anticipation for what he is going to do here uh, amongst this, this local church in the coming season. And so let's look one more time at, at Deuteronomy chapter 5. Just to set the stage a little bit for what's going on here, Moses has gathered the nation of Israel, it's towards the end of Moses' life, he's actually going to die right after he kind of does this this epic message that he's preaching. Um, it, It looks as if pretty much the whole book of Deuteronomy is this one message that he gave. Maybe it was a collection over time, pieced together, we don't know, nobody was there, but... But it's a it's an epically long message that he is teaching. And most of it is is retelling how God gave his law to his people, his, his instruction. And, and so he starts off with laying the groundwork a little bit. Uh then he he comes to the beginning of the law, the Ten Commandments. And he's just read the Ten Commandments, kind of reviewing them for Israel. And then what happens in our passage is uh is the people are going to respond to God's law, and then God is going to respond to the people. So let's look first at the people's response it starts in verse 22 it uh, it says that they they see Moses go up on this mountain uh, and they see you know this incredible scene like this this cloud descends there's thick darkness I don't know exactly what that means Um, there there's fire in, in the midst of it all it's a it's an amazing scene like nothing they had ever seen before and then Moses comes down and uh, the leaders of each of the 12 tribes of Israel all come to him in response. And they say in verse 24, this day we have seen God speak with man and man still live. Because earlier on in Old Testament teaching, uh, God's word said that that no one can, can speak with God and live. And yet they just saw it happen before their eyes. It's kind of freaked them out a little bit. That's why they say in verse 26, Who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God uh, speaking out the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? Their assumption is if you hear God's voice, it's going to be the last thing you hear. And they're kind of freaked out by it. So that's why they're saying in verse 27, Look. You, you seem to have a special pass to like live through this experience. So you go back to God. We don't want to press our luck because, uh, if, if, if we keep hearing from God, uh, we're afraid we're going to die. So you go back up the mountain. You hear all the rest that God has to say. And then you come down and it says, uh, let the Lord of God, He will speak to you. We will hear it and we will do it. He says, they say. That's great, it's a good response. And then God responds to them, and he, and he affirms this. He says in verse 28, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you, and they are right in all they have spoken. He hears their reverence for his word. He hears their their humility, in their kind of their, their, their submission to his teaching, at least at the time. But then God says something really, really interesting. Really profound, and, and this is a key verse that we're going to kind of unpack the meaning of here in our time together today in, in verse 29. He says, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always. Uh, in the Bible throughout, and particularly in the Old Testament, the heart is is really the center of your identity. It's the, the center of your, your being as a human being. So he says, he says that, the, oh, if, if only the center of who they are was always this kind of heart, this heart to, to hear everything I say and, and to obey it, to, to keep all my commandments. This word for keep means to, to carefully observe all my commandments that it might go well with them and, and their future generations, their descendants forever, he says. But the key to understanding this verse and what God is saying in this verse is the first word, the little word. Oh, this this Hebrew word—it's like a—it's like a sigh of lament, in a sense. God says, "This is a good response if they only have that response—to to to revere my name and my word, to carefully observe all that I have commanded them, uh, for their own good and the benefit of, the, of their future generations." But—and it's a huge but—he says, "But I know it's not going to be that way." Oh, if only it were the case, but I know it's not going to be the case. It's kind of a, a, a lament of God. I know that they will not always follow my words. I'm going to continue to give my words. But it's, it's almost a grief hanging over this verse. That he, he, he laments that, that this is not going to go well, Right? Uh, we talked about lament a number of times in, in our previous uh, series going through kind of, uh, I think it could have been called Isaiah's Greatest Hits, um, where we were looking at like key passages from the book of Isaiah. And, and this idea of lament came up a lot. It's come up a number of times in the life of, of Sound City over the last year or two. Uh, lament is something that is, uh, uh, runs all over the scriptures, but is almost completely absent from our modern culture. The biblical idea of lament is is when difficult things, when hard things happen, instead of stuffing them and pretending they don't exist, or instead of uh, on the other end of the spectrum getting completely crushed by them into resentment and, and despair or even bitterness, instead we're supposed to engage with them, feel that pain and let it shape us, let it soften our hearts, not harden our hearts. And God is not exempt from this. God laments often in the scriptures, and I think this is one of these. But think about this. It's a profound thought. God knew his people would not carefully observe his teaching, and yet he continued to teach them anyway. He continued to lead them to provide for them, to faithfully love them, even though he knew from the outside. It's like like, uh, entering into a dating relationship when you know the person is going to be unfaithful. It's not like that. It's exactly that. Why would he do that? To what end? What is the point? If you know if you know it's not going to go, well, why do you do a thing? I, I, I often don't. If I know from the beginning it's going to go very poorly and the words that I'm about to say that they're not going to, to really care that much about, I oftentimes I don't say them, right? Why does God do this? I made the joke that dates myself at the in the first gathering that uh, why why didn't he just kind of uh, I said shake the Etch-A-Sketch which dates myself uh, how many know how many know what an Etch-A-Sketch is yeah okay yeah some um, it's an ancient drawing device uh, <laughs> uh, artifact of artistic creation it, it was this this weird magnetic kind of thing where you had two knobs and you guided this weird little magnetic cursor that picked up these magnetic particles and essentially you could make drawings with it kind of by turning the knob um, and then when You've had enough of your weird little drawing that has to all be connected. You you turn you you shake it and it's a do over. So it's it's kind of a metaphor for a do over, as it were. Uh, Why didn't God just press the reset button if he knew that God's people were not going to follow what he had to say? Why didn't he just start over and make for himself a people who would after they rebelled? We're going to meditate on that a bit, but but let's just finish this passage here because it kind of leads to more more a reflection, I think, naturally. God gives this kind of cryptic lament, oh, that they would always have this heart. And then he he just continues to instruct his people. He says, okay, go, in in verse 30, return to your tents, verse 31, Moses, you come here, I'm going to tell you all the rest of the commandments I have to offer, uh, that they may do them in this land that they're about to to enter into. Uh, Then he says in verse 32, but be careful uh, not to turn aside from the right hand or the left. Walk in all the ways the Lord God has commanded you that you may live and that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land that you shall, that you are about to uh, possess. God God gives this metaphor that, that, that following his commands, it's like staying on a narrow path. He says, don't turn away from the path to the left. Don't turn away to the right. Don't stray off this path. Stay to the path. Reminds me of the the, the now famous phrase from the Mandalorian. This is the way, right? Stay on the way. Stay on the path. So it begs the question, did they stay on the path? What happens next? Well, starting with chapter 6, this is the end of, of chapter 5. Starting with chapter 6, uh, Moses tells the story of how he went back up the mountain, and he tells everything else that God said to him. It takes the next 20 chapters to detail all the things that that, that God taught him, and then he's going to bring that down to the people. Well, what happens uh, while he's gone? Because it ends up taking a while. It ends up taking longer than the people expected, 40 days to be exact. And at some point in, I don't think it says exactly how many days or, or maybe a couple weeks in, but they start to get a bit anxious about his absence. They're like, this is taking longer than we thought. There's still fire and clouds and weirdness on the mountain. They're getting a kind of antsy. And they come to a conclusion, well, I guess maybe the scriptures were true, that no one can hear the voice of God and live. Ah, Moses must be dead. So what are they going to do? Well, they, they, they collect up all the, the precious metals they can find, uh, that anybody has and they melt them all down and they make for themselves a, a cute little cow, a, a golden calf, as it were. And they decide that that's going to be their answer, that they're going to, they're going to worship and bow down and offer sacrifices to this golden calf. And maybe, maybe that calf will direct them and provide for them and, and show them what to do next because Moses is gone. A little bit of time a bit of anxiety and uncertainty. A few chapters later, they they, they quickly turn from the path God called them to. And this is how it goes for Israel over and over and over again. I always like to remind people of the name of Israel and what it means. Because in the Bible, people's names uh, often have a very specific meaning, particularly the ones that God gives to people. And Israel's name, the word Israel means struggles with God. And they live up to it. And any other version of God's people than the people are the people who struggle with God is a version of the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel says, follow the rules and you'll be awesome and everything will go great. That's never been the story of God's people. They never followed the rules. It never really went particularly well. And they always struggled with God, right? Joshua, who's the next leader after Moses, he does lead them into this land God promised. It's called Canaan. Um, They end up fighting lots of battles and they win most of them and they end up getting the land and they start to settle down. Then Joshua dies and man, it doesn't go particularly well. What comes after that is called the time of the judges when they were ruled by these judges. And the summary of the book of Judges is in the time of the judges, uh, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's a tough time. And then they decide, like, man, this time of the judges is brutal. I think what we need, we don't need to, like, follow God more closely. What we need is a king. Because when we look around all the big boy nations, all the varsity nations, uh, they have a king. We feel kind of like JV, maybe freshmen. Um, as, as a nation, we need a king to go pro, right? So they God interprets it as betrayal of them. And they go after a singular leader to lead them. And it doesn't go well either, especially with the first king. This guy named Saul it was a terrible mixed bag. Uh, and then they, they, they get their two best kings, uh, which is David and his son Solomon. But David is a murderer and adulterer. He did a lot of good stuff, but mixed bag. Solomon, uh, in all of his wisdom, the wisest man who ever lived, he doesn't follow faithfully after God until the end of his life. Another mixed bag. And from that point, it just gets worse. That's like a 100 years of those guys reign. A 100 years into the time of the king's the kingdom divides in like a bitter dispute. Uh, it's a downward spiral. Ultimately, they're conquered and ruled by other kingdoms for the rest of their being. First Assyria, then Persia, then oh, sorry, then Babylon, then Persia. And God laments what's going on through the prophet Isaiah in the midst of this exile. and it sounds very similar to Deuteronomy five in Isaiah forty-eight when he says. God says, oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river, your righteousness like the waves of the sea. But they didn't. Again and again, they turn from his commands. There are consequences, but he never leaves them. He never turns away from them. He always keeps loving them. And what about the promised land? Well, it's continually occupied, even to this day. We'll talk about that more uh, in, in the conclusion. Persia gives way to Greece. Greece gives way to Rome, always under occupation, never having really particularly good days as a people. And in those days, along comes actually, I think, what a lot of their hope was pointing towards, even though they didn't realize it, and that's Jesus. Jesus comes as the fulfillment of all of God's promises to Israel, unlike any human being before or since. And unlike all the people of Israel, unlike every other human being before him, Jesus perfectly followed God's law. But there was a problem. Because over the years, the, the, the people of Israel had taken the law and the, and the commandments that God initially gave to them and added on to them more and more and more. Rule upon rule, legalism upon legalism, until it started to look like the IRS tax code. Uh, where, where you could, you, you, you had to like, it, it was just a, a ton of rules. I won't go into all the details. And Jesus shows up, God in the flesh, through whom those words were given, the words of the law. He's like, you know, I, I, I actually know the law because I inspired the law, and what you're doing here in the name of God's law is not God's law. And so he kind of seemed to almost take delight in violating it, and that did not go over well. It did not go over well at all. Because of this, they saw Jesus, uh, Jewish leadership saw Jesus as a threat to what they had built, and they rejected him. And this goes on in, in an escalating way throughout his ministry until Jesus himself echoes yet another lament, very similar to Deuteronomy chapter five. He says, as he enters Jerusalem for the last time before his death, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. John, one of Jesus' best friends and and closest disciples, describes what happened uh, in his gospel. John chapter one, verse 11, he says, says, he, Jesus, Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Jewish leaders had him killed on on made-up charges, and as Jesus was dying a horrible, painful, and humiliating death on a Roman cross, Jesus took all of the rebellion of his people onto himself. All the ways that, that every human being has 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 seen God and, and, and experienced his law and commandments and violated them. He took all of them onto himself. All the ways we followed we, we failed to follow the path of his instruction. And he made a way to know God apart from having to follow all the rules of the law. And the Apostle Paul, who who Rachel described in, in the liturgy as, as one of the best rule followers that, that the people of Israel have ever had, yet he describes what Jesus did on the cross in Romans chapter 3. He said, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, in God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He says, one of the things that the law is best at, it's not, it's not, nobody can follow all the rules. No one will be saved by following all those rules because no one can do it well enough. He says, actually what the law is really best at is showing what sin is. And every parent has experienced this. He says, he says, I didn't really even know what it was to like covet other people's stuff until God's law said, don't covet. It's like, it's like your kid never really thought about grabbing the hot stove pan until you said don't grab the hot stove pan and then the kids simply must try it right this is just this is how this is part of 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 the sin nature that every human being is born into paul goes on in, in verse 21 of romans 3 but now the righteousness of god meaning right standing with god our creator has been manifested apart from the law although the law and prophets bear witness to it so so they were pointing to jesus he says But uh, skip to verse 23, But, but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus. So we do not experience right relationship with God by following all his commandments. We experience right relationship with God through faith and relationship with the only one who ever did. And his name is Jesus but it raises the question. Then, 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 then kind of, uh, what I raised when we first read uh, Deuteronomy five twenty nine. Then, what is the freaking point? You know, what what is the point of the law? What is God's law and instruction for? Well, Paul uh, gives an answer to this in, in Galatians chapter three. He says, he says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Paul says the law was, was our guardian. It, it pointed the way to right living. It showed God's people how they are to live in such a way that shows that they are his people, different than the world around us. God's Old Testament law, in a similar way to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, along with every other behavioral and, and, and ethical and moral command of Scripture, they were given for our instruction to show us how we're supposed to live. It's meant to guide our lives, but following those rules in itself does not earn God's favor. Paul says no one can follow them well enough. And God gave them in full knowledge of all the ways we would fall short to, to reveal sin and to show more deeply how much we need Jesus because he loves us. And there's a very specific word in the Old Testament, that, that describes this kind of love that God has. The Old Testament uses the word it, it, in Hebrew; it's it's hesed, but it's it's translated in most Bible translations as God's steadfast love. It shows up 245 times in the Old Testament. And and there's a definition that I've heard of of this word, said" that is the very best that I've ever heard. Uh, Theologians have not been able to answer it better than this gal, Sally Lloyd-Jones, who wrote a children's Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible. She defines God's said steadfast love as his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. If you don't have the Jesus Storybook Bible and you have kids, even if you don't have kids, like it's a profound theological resource. Actually, the, my, my favorite of maybe there's new ones. My kids are older now. My youngest is eighteen. My oldest is twenty-two. Um, so I'm not still in the children's Bible phase. But um, but when they were, uh, man, the, the the Jesus Storybook Bible, or the JSB as we called it, um, is a a powerful work of just just putting the big ideas of scripture in a a very simple format never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It's God's covenant love. It's his his one sided love. It's a love that is not dependent on the performance of the one who he's loving. In the New Testament, this is called grace, and I want to read this word about grace from one of my favorite books I've ever read on the subject. It's written by a guy named Paul Zahl, Z-A-H-L, and it's called Grace in Practice. Listen to this. He says, what is grace? Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. It is being loved when you are the opposite of lovable. Grace is a love that has nothing to do with you, the beloved. It has everything and only to do with the one who is the lover. So we are on the receiving end. It has all to do with the giver of the love and nothing to do with the one who receives it. Grace is irrational in the sense that it has nothing to do with weights and measures. It has nothing <coughs> It has nothing to do with my intrinsic qualities or my so-called gifts, whatever they may be. It reflects a decision on the part of the giver, the one who loves, in relation to the receiver, the one who is loved, that negates any qualification the receiver may personally hold. Grace is one-way love. Love that phrase. Grace is one way love. Now it can be reciprocated. It can be returned. We love God because He loved us first. But if we're honest, and we should be, like it's it's not a good comparison. Like there's a a vast gap, right? Between the love we offer God and return in comparison to what He offers to us. It is, it's a one way. In steadfast love and grace, God teaches us, leading us through his word, patiently forgiving us for our failure, loving us with this steadfast love. And he continues to do that until we enter the true and final promised land when Jesus returns and we're with him together forever. And that, my friends, is what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It's not just a story in Deuteronomy about about God's Old Testament people wandering around in the desert. It's a story about all of God's people over and over and over again. After sin came through the first humans, God knew that no one would faithfully follow him, but he loved and led and taught and provided for us patiently anyway. And so in light of that, that steadfast love, I just want to give you a few things kind of in summary, just a few messages specifically for Sound City, as I've been praying for you, because this is going to be the last of my kind of regularly recurring messages here for a while. I don't think it's the last time I'll ever be here, but, but it's, it's not going to be as regular as it was. And I just want to share some of my heart for you, particularly in light of this idea of God's love and provision for you. And the, So I'm going to tell you three things to remember and then uh, one word of, of thanks that I want to give personally. First thing is this, I want you to remember, particularly in light of what we saw in this passage, remember God's steadfast love for Sound City Bible. And and, and as a way of remembering God's steadfast love, I want to give you just a little bit of a the story of your church that, that a few of you were around for, but most of you don't. When I look out on the room, you know, there's a handful of you who were here at, at, at the beginning of, of of the life of this church. It had a different name, um, but a lot of you have come along the way. Then there's a significant chunk of you that have come a lot more recently. So, Mar, uh, so this church began in 2006, whether you realize that or not, and it began really, truly as a a a, a multi site experiment of sorts by a huge mega church down in seattle called mars hill church and i was there i was the first worship pastor at mars hill church uh i joined the church in 99 became the first worship pastor it had in in 2000 it was about 200 people at that point and it grew between 50 and 200 percent every year for many years after that And fast forward to 2005, going into 2006, we had renovated a big warehouse building down in the Ballard neighborhood of Seattle and had grown to five, six thousand people in a church that, in a building that had about a thousand seats, maybe 1,200. So we were busting at the seams, trying to figure out what to do. The only building that was larger that we could even C was uh, the the key arena, and that wasn't really viable because we had no money. Um, we did look at it though; that was the size of our ambition. Uh, and and so we started this. An opportunity came up, and it, we started it as as almost kind of like an overflow room for folk in the burbs to the north, right? We were like, this is not a church; it's just kind of a, a satellite service. We're just going to see how this works, you know, and try it on for size. And so Mars Hill Shoreline was born. It was meeting uh, at Shoreline on the on the campus of Christa Ministries. There's a there's a, a Christian school there called King's School, and a radio station, and various other things they do. We met in an auditorium on that 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 campus. I came up and, and led worship often in those early days because uh, we didn't have a. a the, the, it was just kind of seat of the pants by a lo- whole lot of things. Um, I mostly was at our kind of main location in Ballard in Seattle, but I was here a lot. And as Mars Hill grew over the years that followed, uh, Charlotte was kind of the guinea pig for every new idea we had, and we had lots. We reorded Mars Hill, uh, two to four times a year. And, and always new models and new structures. And, and our joke was kind of like shoreline. It's like, you know, that metaphor about, about, uh, being on the end of the tail that's wagging the dog. So, so the idea is like the closer you are to the tail, I guess the butt, um, uh, you, you know, the, the wagging isn't a, as much changed, but you were kind of down here. This is, this is Mars Hill Shoreline, uh, kind of getting pulled around with every new structure. We're going to call it a campus now. No, we're going to call it a church. No, we're going to call it a site. No, we're going to have lead pastors. No, we're going to, you know, all these different things that we did. That's, that's where your church came from. Fast forward to 2014, Mars Hill ended in a storm of conflict and controversy, but, but you guys continued. And you guys became a, a local independent church called Sound City, named by uh, your lead pastor up until recently, Aaron Gray, um, for, for two main reasons. One, for the Puget Sound, but arguably almost just as influentially because of his inordinate love for the Foo Fighters. <laughs> which is, it's a Foo Fighters, if you don't know what that is, that's a band, uh, and they have an album called Sound City, and Aaron was quite into Sound City, uh, or the Foo, the, the Foo Fighters. Um, you lived a, a kind of a nomadic life for a while, not unlike the people of Israel in rented spaces, setting up and tearing down, movie theaters and such for a while, until you met the good folks at Martha Lake Baptist, uh, and your churches came together, and you guys settled here. Uh, it might be a little bit of an overstatement to say you arrived perfectly in the promised land, but it was kind of like that, you know? Like this is kind of a canon of sorts. You got to put down roots actually in a building and join these two uh, church bodies together. You settled here, you held fast through a, a pandemic in very divisive times, and now you're going through a significant leadership change. And I just want to say, even just with that little brief oral history, of your church, remember, remember that. Remember God's steadfast love for Sound City Bible because he has been so good to your church. I have been in vocational ministry for 26 years now, almost to the day. I have seen a lot of churches come and go in that time. And I've seen a lot of churches close their doors for less than you have been through. For any one of the conflicts and controversies and difficult things you've gone through, I've seen a church fold. Your story defies logic. Your story defies church leadership models. It's a testimony of God's grace. And I tell your story uh, to lots of, I work with lots of churches in my consulting work. I tell you guys a story often. Even this most recent round, like like a, a lead pastor transition, and over that time, uh, your church actually increased in size and stayed fairly consistent in giving. I just want you to know that, like that, doesn't happen usually. when, when there's a transition like that, the they, conservative estimates so are you, you lose a third of both. Sometimes it's a lot more. Sometimes the church doesn't make it. God has been so good to you. His hand is on you. His steadfast love has has provided for you and led you and sustained you through all of these things. And so the first thing I want to to encourage you to remember going forward is is remember. Remember this story. Remember this story when things start to get wobbly the next time. When there's a tough other transition of leadership in somewhere or other when there when there's difficult things remember your history remember how god has taken you through all of these things secondly i want to encourage you to remember and this is a very specific phrase remember the love you had at first let me just give you a little context on this phrase in the book of Revelation, the last book in your Bible, uh, Jesus appears to his best friend John and gives him a series of, of visions. And the first vision that he gives him is a specific message he has for seven different churches, uh, specific words that he gives to these churches. The first one is a message to the church uh, in a town called Ephesus. And he goes on and lists a, a bunch of good things about that church, but then he gives them a stark warning. He says, You've done all these things well, but Jesus says, But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, it's a weird phrase. Whenever you come to a, a, a phrase in the Bible that isn't used anywhere else and this isn't um it's hard to figure out exactly what it means so some people say like maybe the love you had at first means that they started off really loving jesus and their love has kind of grown cold that's one interpretation another interpretation is is maybe they were really good at loving one another at first and now they've kind of fell off on that i think it's both i think it's both because jesus said the greatest commandment that summarizes the entire law and all the commandments of the old testament is this Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Essentially, love God and love one another. So it's both of those things. I'm pretty sure is what God means here. And Jesus gives with this warning. He says, he says, you've abandoned the love you had at first. Repent. Do the things you used to do. Go back to that love. And if you don't, I'm going to shut your church down. We learn from Revelation 2 and 3 that that sometimes when a church closes, it's not a tragedy. It's actually God's plan. Jesus himself closes churches. And I sincerely personally believe that God closed Mars Hill Church for this same reason. That we lost the love that we had at first. We became more about proving ourselves through performance and ambition both to God rather than resting in his love, and, and proving ourselves to be more concerned with just the size of the organization than actually loving the people who God entrusted to us. And so, God killed Marcel Church as much as we did, those of us who were in leadership. And last night, I was having dinner. I met Reese for the first time. We had some lovely Thai food and. Uh, at one point he asked me a question. He said, "He said, what do you think is so different about Sound City? How have they weathered all these storms? How have they held together through all of this stuff that, that we both know has killed plenty of, of, of other churches? And I had an answer immediately. I didn't even have to think about it. It just came to mind from everything I have seen in stark contrast to and in direct response to what happened with Mars Hill I believe you at Sound City have maintained your first love the love you had at first not perfectly nobody does it perfectly nobody perfectly loves God or perfectly loves one another But that's remained as far as I can tell the heart of your life together you guys have a, a community and, and a lived out shared experience that, that all churches are supposed to have and not very many do and I've seen it, and I've experienced it. I've been deeply encouraged by it. Unfortunately, it's exceptional, meaning that it's not always the case. It's not often the case, honestly. It's sad. But you guys are a breath of fresh air. I would be a member of this church if I lived near here. And I don't have a church exactly like this. I, I'm not, I love my home church. Um, I'm really grateful for the church that I'm a part of right now. I'm not trying to, to throw too much shade there away, or any real shade there way. It's a wonderful church. But it's a lot larger, and um, there's just a lot of things I just love about San City and the way you guys love one another. So I want you to to remember this. Remember God's steadfast love for you, and God's love for us is always meant to, to flow to us and then through us to others. So he loves us with this incredible, patient, steadfast love, and we are to be conduits of that. As we love him with all our heart, mind, and strength, we are to love one another. And I want to challenge you, love one another more deeply than your theological convictions or differences. Jesus loved his disciples, and none of them believed in him until they got the Holy Spirit, and then they still struggled. Don't forget that Jesus' disciples lived in active disbelief in him. He lived Deuteronomy 5 his entire life. And he said that we're supposed to be marked by our love for one another. Let's love one another. Man, today we will divide over the smallest theological distinction in the church, and it's brutal. It's why the world doesn't believe what we say we think. Love God, love one another more deeply than your theological differences, more deeply than your political differences, more deeply than whatever your leadership does and all the ways they screw things up, because they will. And when things get hard and divisive, continue to be known for your love and have grace for one another. And thirdly, I just want to encourage you to remember that God's promised land is with Jesus. It does not happen here in this world. God promised his people a land flowing with milk and honey. And, and uh, Josh jokingly reminded me, he's like, well, we do have both milk and honey as options for the coffee. Um, but uh, <laughs> this is not exactly what I think God was promising. He promised a land where their descendants would grow like the stars in the sky and become a people made up of people from all nations. He led them to this place called Canaan. But since the day they got there and ever since, even to this moment as we're gathering together, it is still being fought over and hotly contested. Probably the most contested piece of land on planet earth over all history. So either God is not very good at keeping his promises. If that was the ultimate promise, God is like a God that has very little power and he's wringing his hands like, hey guys, I tried, I I did what I could. Or he has something else in mind. I believe it's the option two. God's ultimate promised land will come with the new Jerusalem described in Revelation. A fully realized kingdom of God that comes down from the sky and makes all things new on earth when Jesus returns. That's our great hope. That's our great promised land. And it's super tempting to try and create that here on earth now through our families, through views of a nation and political leadership, and even through your local church. And family and our nation uh, and the church, they're all good things, but they're not meant to carry that weight. They will always fail. They're only a foretaste of God's real promise. And until then, it will always be a mixed bag. And it will be in the midst of this, maybe some of you will will struggle with, uh, you know, leaning towards the promised land uh, too much uh, in this election year. That's all I'll say about that. Just caution you. Uh, what a mess. Uh, but some of you, more locally, may be tempted to, to think of Reese, your new lead pastor, as a bit of a Moses, sent to lead you to a promised land of better days, right? I met Reese last night for the first time. I was deeply encouraged by Reese, and he seems to be a wonderful person. I'm so glad that God brought you together and did it so quick. That's another crazy thing I forgot to mention. It was the first church he told me that they really seriously considered and it only took a few months for you guys to get in the midst of all this. Like That also doesn't happen in this day and age. And yet, as good as Reese looks, it's just because you haven't got to know each other yet. <laughs> when you get to know Reese, and when Reese gets to know you, that new, that new car smell will wear off a little bit, right? <laughs> just like it is with your spouse. <laughs> you're just starting to date Reese, right? Uh, you, you, you're just like your spouse, just like with your kids. Like, they're amazing when they can't move or talk. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Until they develop their own will, which actually happens pretty quick, just like your job. Your new job is the best, isn't it? But it won't be in a year, right? You know, or a country. Whatever. I'll just, again leave that. Um, I thank God for Reese. I believe he's going to be a blessing to you. But I, my point is, in all seriousness, I want you to hope most deeply in God's steadfast love through Jesus. And then when leadership fails you and you fail leadership, you'll have grace for one another. Because you will. And that's the only way it goes. And I've seen that over time. I see that in this leadership transition. I just want to commend you for it and encourage you to stay on that course. Stay on that path. And, and my final word is really just a word of thanks to you guys. Uh, for what you've come to mean to me. I started in church leadership in March of 98, almost exactly 26 years ago. I was 23. I left local church staff in uh, March of 2021 at the age of 46. So you can do the math. I started at 23. I stopped, uh, transitioned off church staff three years ago when I was 46. Now I'm about to be 49 in a couple weeks. weeks. Um, I think I'll stay there indefinitely, uh, just be 49 again, uh, just like I was 39 for a while. Um Anywho, they, you know, it was half my life. I, I started working for churches when I was 23. And, and I transitioned off staff in my last church when I, was, when I was 46. There was a lot of amazing things that happened along the way, a lot of really painful and difficult things that happened. And I needed a break more than I realized that I did. And I'm so grateful that God opened doors for me to serve churches more broadly through teaching and music and training and coaching and consulting. I love the church, but I also wanted to keep a little distance. You know, it's kind of like a bad breakup. You can't hang out with them all the time. You gotta have a little emotional distance. And and I'm so grateful to God that he he gave me that opportunity to, to stay in close relationship with the church, but not have to carry as much weight and drama and conflict. And, and the churches that I've been a part of seem to have a bit outsized sense of weight and conflict and drama. It, and it was tough. I needed to heal. And I have healed a lot. Uh, I won't be fully healed until I see Jesus, just like any of us, right? But he's done a lot of work in my life. I still cared for people. But but there was a sense in which through consulting, I was able to kind of keep my distance, you know? I can, I can just come in, I can work with the church and then I can leave. Like, hey, it was great. Good good luck. Uh, You know, like, um, but it started going different with that here. I I started working with you almost exactly two years ago, early 22. Started off in more of a pure consulting role, helping from a distance, coming up once a month, helping with music, helping to organize some things. Um, But slowly, really, as I look back imperceptibly, it started to become something deeper. As I got to know more of you, as I spent more time with more of you, uh, I think I was able to encourage you guys at different points and I became more and more encouraged by you over those years. And I began calling Sound City kind of jokingly but not jokingly like my my church home away from home. That's how you guys have have come to be for me. You became dear brothers and sisters. And then last month I got a a doozy of a, a sermon assignment to preach to you. Uh, it was early December and it was the beginning of an Advent series and, and the assignment was uh, Jesus brings peace from Philippians chapter 4 on, on how God brings peace in the midst of anxiety. And that hits home pretty close for me in general because I, I have a lot of anxiety at times that I, that I wrestle with. And, uh, and then that week in particular leading up to the preaching of that message, was a doozy of a week where I just lived it. It's not always that way as a preacher, but this was one of those weeks where it's like, whew, there was a lot of anxiety, a lot of difficult things that happened that week for me, and um, I really had to live it out. And I come to like the night before, I'm gonna drive up here and, and preach that message, and I was doing final preparation, and, and I was just, I, I know a lot of you guys struggle with anxiety. In general, it's an anxious time in our world. Um, anxiety's up on all the stats, but... But those of you, brothers and sisters, who I know more personally and know some of you like really struggle with anxiety in similar ways, and I was praying for you by name. And as I was doing so, this doesn't happen all the time, I I, I, I kind of like have a visceral reaction against people that are like, God told me this and God told me that or whatever because I think it can be kind of flippant in times. But this is one where it's like as close to an audible voice as I've heard. It happens occasionally for me, not all the time, but, but I heard this, this really clear voice as I was praying for some of you very specifically by name. And, and what God said was, over these last six or seven months in, in preaching uh, to Sound City, that there's a real sense in which, and the words were that, that you have, have nursed my shepherd's heart back to life. And, and it was this this image that immediately came to mind of someone who's who who had an injury and can't walk very well and, and, and is slowly kind of recuperating in a hospital. And and it's a slow recovery, but bit by bit the person can kind of like walk again, and that's how I feel here. I, I I've kind of been able to to walk again with more confidence in gifts that I used to walk in confidently, but kind of got beat down a bit over, over the years through a lot of pain and, and conflict and drama. And I don't know exactly where God is, is leading me with that. I, I don't know. There's, there's thoughts of a, of a church plant, in my hometown, the people I'm talking with around that, I don't know if that's going to happen or not. It's really early stages. Maybe that's not working. Maybe it's just something that is just a change of heart with everybody else that I work with in consulting. I I don't know where he's leading me. But I know that he has deeply formed me through you and through my time here. And so I just want to thank you. I'll always be thankful for these years. And this will always be one of those churches like like paul thanks at the end of his letters and and in acts although most of the time it seems like when he thanks the church he he never sees him again because then he dies so i hope that's not the case uh <laughs> i almost said that in the the, the uh to somebody passing like i want to be like one of those things with, feels like one of those things with paul but i'm like oh but then he dies I'm like oh sorry that's a downer um you know, I suspect this won't be the last time we see each other, but it's gonna—I'm not gonna be around as often. And and I'm just so thankful for you. I praise God for what He has done in and, and through and, and around Sound City, and I'm thankful for what that's meant to me. So remember His love and grace. Remember how He's taken you from, uh, and how He's sustained you. And I can't wait to see what God, God is going to do uh, in and through you in the years to come. So let's close in prayer and then we'll, we'll respond together. Father, we just praise you for your steadfast love. We praise you for your always and forever unbreaking, never giving up love. We praise you for loving us when we were the opposite of lovable. We praise you for leading us through your word, even though you knew we wouldn't follow it. And that even now in the power of the Holy Spirit, for those of us who know you, we're we're being shaped more and more to be more and more like you and and love your word. And still, (laughs) we're so far from living it out. And yet you love us and you're patient with us. And we just praise you for that. I praise you for the testimony and the story of Sound City. And I just ask that you would continue to mold and shape them. I ask that you would continue to to give Sound City a legacy of being known for people who actually live out the love of Jesus. However you choose to bless the church, however it might grow or shrink at any given point in time, I just ask that that's what Sound City would be known for a people who love you passionately and who actually do their very best to live that out and love one another. And that through the testimony of Sound City, many more people would get a glimpse of who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.